the thing about genre, the reason it even exists at all is because it's the device and the mechanism by which we send our values down to the next generation. It's the way we affirm them to ourselves throughout our life. And it's the way a culture keeps its culture intact. It's the myth of the core value of that civilization, whatever it may be, that is going to go down through history and it survives or it doesn't survive. And that's, that's what genre does. It carries the myth. That was the voice of Jane Ann Krentz. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. Jane Ann Krentz has written probably hundreds of romance novels at this point. Her major pen names right now are Jane Ann Krenz, under which she writes kind of contemporaries. Jane Castle is where she kind of puts all of her uh, kind of speculative fiction um, novels. And Amanda Quick is what she writes historicals under. But she has been around for a really long time. She's going to start off by talking about her many pen names, which also include Jane Taylor, Jane Bentley, Stephanie James, and Amanda Glass. Amazing. This conversation, I have had the absolute joy of, you know, sharing meals with Jane Ann Krentz. And so she is, I knew she was going to be remarkable, but this conversation really, gosh, I felt better for it at the end. I felt smarter about romance at the end. And I felt like motivated in a way that I haven't felt motivated in a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome to Faded Mates, everyone. What you're about to hear is our conversation with Jane Ann Krenz, which we recorded last fall in 2021. Thank you so much for coming on and making time to join us for this. We're really thrilled to have you. We are avowed uh, Jane Ann Krenz, Amanda Quick, Jane Castle fans, Stephanie James fans here. <laughs> Wait, let's not name all the names. That just makes me feel like I've been around. <laughs> I will I will say that was never the plan at the start. That was that was not part of, there was no plan, to be honest. But um but if there are any aspiring writers out there, my one piece of advice for your takeaway today is for crying out loud, do not use a bunch of different pseudonyms. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, let's so let's talk about that because why not? The so you have how many were there? How many are there total? Too many. And the reason was because back in the old days, um, a lot of the contracts tied up your name. And uh, if you signed one of those contracts, which, of course, I did early on because I just wanted to be published. Sure. <laughs> and it was like no big deal. Everybody writes under a pen name. And then there were two pen names because once you leave that house, they've got the name. It stays behind. I don't. I doubt that that appears in modern contracts. We, I have not heard of that for a long time. But back at the start of the romance rush in publishing, um, that was not an uncommon feature in a in a contract. So that's how it that's how it started. But <laughs> it got worse because um, <laughs> at some point I managed to kill off a couple of names, including <laughs> my own. And you do that by low um, low sales. You know you bombed out sales, which we'll get to when we talk about what what a fool I was to go into science fiction romance. But um, <laughs> it was a good way to kill off your career at that time. And I did because I wrote it under my Jean Ann Krentz name. So when I destroyed that, I destroyed my 
contemporary career. Mm. And it was at that point that I had to really retrench and figure out how to restart and reinvent myself. And that was when Amanda Quick came along. So Amanda Quick and, and um, is, is a legitimately acquired pen name. I, I did that to myself. Right. Um, Jane Castle happens to be my birth name. I managed to sign that away for a while. <laughs> and um, and then Jane and Chris is my married name. So I'm just under those three. That now it's just the three, right? Mm-hmm. And yep. <laughs> so I was just thinking, was this only in romance? Did this happen to mystery writers or, or other genres? I don't know, but I'm willing to bet that it was pretty common in the paperback side of the market. Yeah. Okay. I don't, yeah, I think it was just kind of a common thing. If you look back, a lot of writers who are writing mystery and suspense today acquired a pen name at some point along the way. So I always, I always wondered, you know, you and I have had a lot of conversations over the years, Jane, about patriarchy and romance. (laughs) And I always thought the pen names were because of the books, but I guess mystery and, and, sci-fi writers also did the pen name thing. Well, the thing about a pen name, if you can get, if the publisher can get that into the contract, all a writer has is her name. Mm-hmm. Right. And if they tie that up, you're tied to the house. It was just hard business, hard yeah. business, what it was. Yeah. Well, and I remember as an early reader of romance in the eighties, like when you finally figured out like, wait, this person is this person. It oh, it like blows your mind. Whole, yeah, because then you're like, wait, there's a whole new someone I can look for in the bookstore or it's like the used bookstore, especially, right? Well, wasn't there a romantic times? Somebody published, there was a, every year there was a publication that was mm-hmm. like an encyclopedia of the romance novelists. And it would say, you know, the, the names, all the names that that particular person was writing under, which, you know, when I started, maybe I started 12 years ago and, um, and that was the time when if you wrote in different genres, which I feel like is the Jane and Krentz way, you write a different genre, you start a different name. But yeah, now it, it's far less common, I think. I think it's common now. I'll tell you how it's different. I think when people self-publish, they sometimes pick a different name. And I think if, especially if the, like the heat level is really different. Right. So I've had author friends say like, well, I'm going to try my hand at maybe something more erotic. And, you know, is this going to interrupt my brand? So I feel like it's but it's so much more in control of the author as opposed to control of the house. So that's a big change. Yeah, I think that's very true. Now, this this was the way it was just done in the old days and and rules were different then. Yeah. So let's go back. Let's we're before you were picking pen names. Um, so tell us about, we're really, we love the journey. So tell us about the journey. How did you become a writer and how did you become a romance writer specifically? You know, I think I just, there was never a point along the way at which I felt I could write romance better than the books I was reading. I love the genre. I found the books. I didn't really find the genre in the way we, anywhere near what we would identify it as today, until I was in after college, until I was in my twenties, and then that's when I stumbled into um, Harlequin. Yeah, they were the only game in town, and they weren't even in town. And that was that did me fine for a few. I don't know how long it was that when I was reading them intensely, but before I wanted to try writing one, and it wasn't that I thought I could do it better than the big names at the time. I just wanted to tell the story my way. 
most of the stories I was reading, well, all of them, looking back on it, I think, um, were very much the British take on the fantasy. And that's a very specific and very tweaked, different take than what most American readers respond to. Well, can you explain, can you talk about that? What does that mean? (laughs) Okay, the quick and easy way to understand it is that in the British romance, your heroine is marrying up. Mm. She's marrying the Duke or some version thereof. In the American romance, it's much more of a partnership kind of approach to the romance. And what matters is the man's competence. It doesn't matter what he does. He just better be good at it. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's what counts. So it's a different take. There's also more sass in the American romance. Mm -hmm. And that may come from our good old 1930s movies. You know, those Mm -hmm. screwball comedies and the fast chatter, chatter back and forth from the, the 1930s romantic and often romantic suspense films. I don't know where it came from, but it's just, it, it was in the, in the American romance, almost from the get go. The voice is so different and it, because it's more of a conversational quick repartee. It, it actually isn't original with us. I mean, that's what Georgette Hire was doing, mm-hmm. but uh, it kind of fell away in, in the British romance that I was reading and, Came back big time in the American romance. And so, when you talk about this, the American romance, these these books that you were that you were reading, are we talk? We're talking about categories, the early categories, or are you talking about historicals from the seventies too? I didn't start reading <laughs> this confession time. I never really <laughs> good. Read- Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I never read historicals. I never. I, I wanted the contemporary story. I wanted romantic suspense, and that was to be found in the contemporary setting in those days. So I never was drawn to the historicals until I managed to kill off my Jane Ann Krenz career and I had to reinvent myself as Amanda Quick. And then I was starting from scratch because I had no idea how those books worked. Right. So, but I'm a librarian. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so were you a librarian at the when you were reading and, and yeah. writing? Yes. And so where tell us where you were and you were... Oh, gosh. Well, probably the, the the lowest point of my librarian career was the one year I spent as a school librarian. That that's a calling, not a career, <laughs> and I was not called. Um, and I spent the rest of my my librarian career at um, Duke University Library, and then later Inks, a couple of corporate libraries out west here. Um, we we interviewed Beverly Jenkins for the series, and she too was a corporate librarian. So I feel like you know there are all these little connections. Yeah. Well, that was the, that was the most boring work, actually, the <laughs> corporate work. I, I mean, I don't, it was a job and I needed a job, but uh, it's, for me, it was much more interesting to work with readers, scholars, students, you know, people who were actually after information, not just the latest um, drawing for that particular gadget you know, <laughs> that they got to dismantle. But that's just me. I just happen to like the, the public work better. Jane, we read your book, Gentle Pirate, and the heroine was a corporate librarian, I think, right? Was that around the time that you had that job? I mean, this would have been like the very early 80s. That was the first book I wrote that sold. Okay. There was another book that came out actually a few months earlier, but it was actually sold after by Gentle Pirate. Uh, Gentle Pirate was sold to 
into the beginning of the ecstasy line. Mm-hmm. That was the line that um, Vivian Stevens, Vivian Stevens founded. Vivian Stevens was, you know, she really turned the whole American romance industry, book publishing industry on its head. She just totally changed everything. If it hadn't been for her, I don't know how it would have developed, but she was a game changer. And because of her, a lot of what we now take as familiar voices in the genre got their start. It started with Vivian Stevens. Yeah, that first class with Vivian was you and Sandra Kidd and Sandra Brown and... Some other names that have come and gone that were big Barbara, at the time. Barbara Kingsolver, is that, is that right? Barbara Delinsky. Barbara Delinsky. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking of Amy Lauren. She sure. was, we read that one too. She was book one mm-hmm. in that in that line, yeah. So uh, you were writing, so you sat down, you put pen to paper. Did you have people who were encouraging you? Was it a secret? Yeah, of course it's a secret. <laughs> of course it's a secret. <laughs> you're not going to tell anybody you're trying to write a book until you've actually. <laughs> well, I don't know. I told everyone. <laughs> back, back in my day, it was not something you said anything. You just it, The closest you would have gotten, and I tried a couple times, and it was disastrous, was to attend some of the writers, a writer's group, a local writer's Mm -hmm. group. But I wasn't really welcome there because I was really flat out trying to write genre fiction. Mm. And romance at the time was, of of all the genres, the least of them in terms of respect. And everybody else was trying to write a memoir. (laughs) (laughs) Still, that's still the case. Everyone in the writing group is writing a memoir. (laughs) And I didn't see that as very helpful. What changed that landscape, the business landscape, so that I stopped signing stupid contracts with tied up my name, um, was again Vivian Stevens because she was the one that got us all together for the first Romance Writers of America meeting. Mm -hmm. And that changed everything for all of us in terms of finally being able to learn about the business. Yeah. Because I'll tell you, the publishers did not want you to know about how it worked. We couldn't read it. We couldn't read contracts. I mean, it's just this gobbledygook. The con- well, they still are, but now at least you've got an agent usually to help you, or you can get a lawyer to help. Right? You. Because well, this is important. So you did not, you didn't have an agent in these early days selling Harlequins. I did eventually, but, but not most very- people didn't. They just sort of packed up their manuscript and stripped it off. I, I, I should be. I take it back. I had an agent for the first couple of books, and she really ripped me off. So I liked. <laughs> I like like to forget that Fair. it was not it was not a good experience. And after that, I went solo because I didn't trust agents for a while. Mm-hmm. So I didn't calm down about agents until RWA, the first meeting of RWA, when the agent showed up and you could talk to one. And you know, and I that's how I met my current agent, Stephen Axelrod. So who is an agent for many, many, many of the you know big names of the genre. He was at the time because he was one of the few agents who took the genre seriously and saw that it was going to go big once it once the U.S. publishers got into the business. Right. And so he 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 just jumped in early. It was timing, good timing on his part. So going back to these like first books you wrote, you wrote Gentle Pirate. You wrote first, or did you have like things in the drawer that didn't sell? Like what was that sort of journey to? actually like getting a a contract or actually selling those first books? Where did those stories come from? Well, the very first book I wanted to write was actually what we would call futuristic romance. And I wrote a futuristic romance 
And and the other, tip number two for any authors out there, <laughs> it does not pay to be too far ahead of the curve. <laughs> yeah, not in genre. Yeah, you got to hit the wave just right to make it work. But um, but that didn't sell. And then what I was actually reading was contemporary romance because that's all there was. The reason I, to backtrack, the reason I actually wrote the first futuristic romance and had hopes of selling it was because I came across, I was on a student cheap ass tour of, of it, of the Europe and somewhere on some sidewalk, one of those book kiosks had some American novels and I was out of stuff to read. And, and the book that changed my life was on that, on that kiosk. And it was Anne McCaffrey's Restoree. Okay. Which was, yes, futuristic romance. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it did her career any good either because she never wrote another one. <laughs> <laughs> she, she moved on to Dragons. Um, to great wisely. success, right? To great yeah, success. I mean, dra- who didn't find Dragon? But, the, but she wrote a really, what we would call today is, you know, straight up what I'm doing with Harmony and, and the Jane Castle name very much. Mm-hmm. So so that was that was the life-changing thing about that. But after, when I realized I couldn't really make a living on the futuristic, the thing I was actually reading was contemporary. And that's what I then backed off and plunged into. So then walk us through, I have lots of questions. So <laughs> you're there at the, at, you know, with Vivian Stevens and, you know, you're a number, you're the first book. Stephanie James has the first book in one of the, one of the lines, right? You have one of, one of the number ones, correct? Or am I making that up? I can't remember. I might be making that up, but I'm pretty sure you're number one somewhere. So you're writing categories and you're how many, I mean, this is one of the things that I love, I love about people who write, who, you know, we're writing categories that how many books, how many publishers you're working for? How many books are you writing a year? What's this look like? (laughs) Well, keep in mind, the books are a little shorter than what we think of as a full length paperback novel. They were probably about 68,000 words. Mm. They weren't novellas by any means, no. but they were not, they were not as long as a full length novel. So, and, and the other thing factored into it is that you couldn't make a living unless you did three or four a year. I mean, if you're trying to make a living at it, you're going to, and you couldn't build a brand. Right. You have to feed the beast. That's what we've been talking about so much. And then at what point do you think to yourself, all right, well, maybe does single title, the, the bigger books come later. Well, there was no market for single title except historicals. Right. And I had resisted writing those because I didn't read them. Mm-hmm. I, with the exception of George and Hire, but she, I had read those long in my teenage years and I didn't think of sure. them as modern well, and romance. They're not, right? They're not, they don't have sex in them. They're not, mm-hmm. they're not quite the same as the modern romance. No, not at all. So then after I was a success in category, category as the publishers were starting to do one-offs. One, they were starting to experiment with the single title and they wouldn't let me do it because I was not quite ready. Oh, those <laughs> words that you're not ready. You hear yeah. that all the time from people because there was this idea. Would you explain to everybody kind of how the system worked? <laughs> I think the editors didn't have a sense of what really worked in the books with the exception of people like Vivian Stevens. But most of the editors I worked with were not real fans of the genre. Mm-hmm. They didn't read the books. It was a job and they did it as much as possible by the numbers. They, cause they didn't know, they didn't react to the books themselves. I think that limits 
your vision of, and then, of, and then they read outside the genre and it wasn't romance. So, so they had a vision of what books outside the genre was and it wasn't romance. Mm-hmm. So they were probably in hindsight, we're looking for something more along the lines of what we would call women's fiction, mm-hmm. to, you know, big, big book women's fiction. To that kind was of prob- break you out of romance. The idea was eventually you would be good enough. And I'm using air quotes for everyone romance. to get out of romance. Yeah, but I didn't want to get out of it. I wanted to write romance. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> and then what happened was, uh, it was a publisher. It was it was it was Simon and Schuster, Erwin um, Applebaum. He was a publisher at at Simon and Schuster. Um, what was the name? What was the imprint? Are you talking about Pocket? Yeah, Pocket Books. Yeah, yeah. He. He took the first risk of publishing romance writers in big book format and in hardcover. And they just went through the roof. And so he really, eventually I was published by him at back of the start. I I didn't have that good luck, but, um, but he's the one that I think in hindsight really opened up that market and basically proved to New York publishing that, Yes, these women readers will pay full price for a novel. Mm-hmm. So what is your first single title? At what point do you make that switch? Well, I guess the first single title will be the one, the science fiction that failed. Right. So I'm going to hold it up. This, Sweet Starfire. Starfire. This is what we're talking yeah. about. This is, That's I'm it. sure you know about this, the romance novel in English, which is a catalog from Rebecca Romney that... um um, she's put together a, a collection of um, first editions and important works from genre, from the genre. She's a rare books dealer, and we're obsessed. Jen and I are obsessed with yes. this, and so we are. Um, so, Sweet Starfire is—I mean, it's not the first time anybody's ever written um, science fiction and romance, but it this is it, right? This this feels like a moment. I think because it was a true romance, right? In the American style, in. It had everything that the contemporaries had, just a different backdrop. Yes, and and what that brought to to the plate was you could do different kinds of plots. You could open up the plots. Well, the argument being that without sweet sweet Starfire opens the door to paranormal as we know yeah. it. Right. <laughs> well done. Well, I mean, which is a thing. I mean, it's a major. Yeah. It's major. Um, there and you know maybe we would have gotten there probably to vampires and and everything else, but. We got there, I think, more quickly because of you. So, and it's my podcast, so I get to say it. (laughs) (laughs) I've always divided what's, what. okay, what Sweet Starfire had and what all of my science fiction has is a very psychic vibe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I have always drawn a very bright line between the psychic and the supernatural. So when you say paranormal, I tend to think of the supernatural. I tend to shapeshifters and vampires and witches, which I love to read, but I can't write them. Right. They're not, they don't fit my core story. So I've always thought of it as a separate area. And and then there's the psychic romance or whatever you want to call right. it. Which yeah. are still, I mean, those are still the Fog Lake um, trilogy, which the, is it the third one comes out in January? I just want to take a moment here to say to anybody in the audience, this proves I can finish a trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> well done. So We're I very mean, but that, but that it is psychic. It's you know, it, essentially everybody the 
the conceit is like a, a fog goes over this town from like a mysterious governmental en- entity and a whole like towns full of people develop like sort of psychic powers. And then it's like the next generation and the fallout. So it's interesting to hear you draw that line all the way back to books you were writing in the eighties. Yeah. I've always felt that difference, but um, it, I, I don't know that readers see it. It's just as a writer, I'm aware of it. But I think the the reason I've been attracted to the psychic vibe from the very beginning and is because for me, it enhances the relationship. It gives that extra level of knowing between two people and connection and bond. And it gives me other plots to play with. It gives me a little outside the box plots sort of, sort of thing, I think. But I also think it, it has a, it works because it's just one step beyond intuition and most people can get into intuition. Most people believe in intuition. So asking them to take the psychic thing is just that one step beyond, whereas they may not be able to do the vampire thing or the supernatural mm-hmm. thing. That may be a step too far for a lot of readers, but I think a lot of readers are fine with the psychic vibe because everybody thinks they've got one. Right. <laughs> Fair. Wait, I want to go back to it doesn't fit my core story. So you might be the first person who ever explained Core Story to me at a lunch at RWA, which I'm sure you do not remember. But I I want you to talk about what Core Story is for, I mean, for everyone, but also let's talk about yours. Because you seem to know very clearly what your Core Story is. I think I'm pretty familiar with it because I had to understand it at that earlier point when I killed off my science fiction career and had to reinvent myself as Amanda Quick. Mm -hmm. And I had never written a historical. So what I did was I looked at that science fiction book, the last science fiction book, which was Shields Lady. And I stepped back and I said, you know, (laughs) if you take out the, um, the rocket ships and the funny animals and the other planet stuff, what you're really looking at here is a marriage of convenience. And then I thought, well, dang, I know where those fit. <laughs> so, so it was understanding a marriage of convenience built on mutual trust is what led me down the road to historicals. And then I realized it's what I always do. And I think it's important for writers to have a sense of their core story. And if you know your core story, you can sum it up in two or three words, Max. That's how elemental it is because it has nothing to do with the backgrounds, it has nothing to do with plots, it has nothing to do with the uh, eras that you're writing in. It is all about the emotions you're working with and the conflicts that you're working with. My core story is always founded somewhere on trust. And that's, I, I can write forever about it because that's pulled from the inside. It's we just a deep, deep thing that I am always curious about, interested in. Everybody gets violated at one point or another, has their trust violated. Everybody's been through that experience. Everybody has taken the risk of trust. You have to do it daily, basically. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a risk we're all familiar with. Um, and it can wreck a life or it can change a life. And to me, that's all I need. That's just plenty to work with. So I think once you find the conflicts and the emotions that you love to work with, you're going to be able to explore. That's your universe. 
is what it comes down to. That is your universe. And you're going to write in every corner of that universe, some corner, every corner for the rest of your career. I think. <laughs> so it's my theory. No, and I'm sticking I to think it. it's yeah, a great theory. No, and it also makes so much sense that you weren't interested in leaving romance because trust and love go hand in hand so well that right. it makes sense. Yeah. Um, so when you, I want to, I want to get to Amanda Quick, the choice to do the Amanda Quick sw- switch. So you say you've killed off your science fiction career. You're not writing contemporary single titles at this point. Is that because they don't exist generally or you're just not? You know, I don't think so. I think they were all historical. Still at, at this point. Yeah. Okay. And so you decide, cause it's the, this is the late eighties. Yeah, yeah. it feels like the only person I could think of who might have been writing an occasional single title what was, like, perfect. Yeah, contemporary. Like, perfect. McNaught. McNaught had a couple. And there were a couple, um, wasn't But that's a a different angle into it, right? Because McNaught was writing those big epic historicals. And then. Right. So the idea of her being, like. Asked to cut a hundred thousand words out of her books to write category yeah. is, I mean, she just wouldn't. Sure, not gonna I mean, happen. I, yeah. I think Judith McNaught's amazing, but I doubt she'd be <laughs> right. very. She'd be very quick to be like, "Yeah, I can write it in a third of the words." <laughs> so you, at what point do you know you've killed your career? The, the same way you always know it. I couldn't get another contract with that publisher. Okay. When they stop giving you contracts, that's a pretty big. <laughs> that's a good sign. <laughs> And that's when an agent really earns their mm-hmm. keep, in a sense, because it was my agent who sold me as a man. I had to come up with a proposal that he could work with. And it was the Amanda Quick proposal for that for my first Amanda Quick book. And he just did a dang good job selling it to um, Bantam Books at the time. And he sold them without telling it who it was. <laughs> that is a story you hear all the time. Yeah. And then if once they're committed to the book, he could, he, then he could say, well, that's Jane. <laughs> yeah, that's Jane. So, um, but that's, that's you know, he, he did a miraculous job of resurrecting my career at that point. Not just resurrecting your career. I mean, suddenly oh, Amanda yeah. Quick, you know, is everywhere. We, you know, Amanda Quick is one of Jen and Jen and I both, oh, you know, yeah. like this is one of the, it's, it's one of the names that we came to romance with. I think, I think what I just realized too late, probably should have realized earlier was that the Regency, which is where I started it, it it is the perfect background for my voice. And it works just like the thirties is working now for that voice. It's a very similar kind of uh, voice or or conversation and dialogue just suits my style. Both there suit my style. So as a writer, you're choosing to do something that's really out of your comfort zone, it sounds like. So how was that experience for you? Was it generative? Like, did you find yourself really, or or was it always like, a, I would love to get back to like my roots? Like, how did that, how did it go for you? Well, I hadn't been there. So it was, it was no roots to go back to, except the realization that the story I was telling fit that regency in the in the way that the old Georgette Hayer had that I kind of that's what I clung to what I worried most about because I was am are <laughs> a, li- a librarian um was the research and that was to tell you the truth it's the reason I hadn't gone into the historicals in the first place 
I had majored in history. I knew how complicated it was. But the lesson I learned very fast was that when you write, when you write genre, you are writing not the real history, but you're writing the myth. And the myth of the Regency was already there because Georgette Hare had created it. So I just wrote on that. So one of the things, when we read Ravished on the on Fate of Mates, we did a deep dive episode on, on the book and, you know, we love it. And one of the things that we talked about was how you didn't invent the blue stocking, obviously. The hair was there before you. But there is a difference. Amanda Quick comes on the scene and suddenly it's like a door opens on historicals. And I'm wondering if you it, does that. I mean, first of all, do you do you think that that's that I, that's a good um, that that's a good read on what was going on? Because it feels like uh, prior to that, you know, you had all of the big, you know, the four J's, and you had kind of other historicals that were doing a kind of different thing. And then in comes the Amanda Quick historical with the smart you know, savvy heroine, the blue stocking, the um, the hero who is her true partner from the start. I mean, going back to your core story, now that you've said that, of course, right? This of kind course, of exactly. That's what I feel piece. too. I'm like... But at the same... And so, you know, I, I reread all of your pieces in Dangerous Men, Adventurous Women in preparation for this conversation, and we'll get there. But one of the things that you talk about is this idea of the hero as both hero and villain. He plays both roles. And... I think that is really true prior to you in historicals, but he doesn't become the hero until much later um, in those earlier historicals versus, you know, when you think about the hero of Ravished, he's a decent dude from the jump. And I think that is really, it feels like a Jane Ann Krentz or an Amanda Quick Regency suddenly was doing a little bit of a different thing. Was that intentional or was it you were just doing the different thing? It was just intuitive. Yeah. Because that's that's the kind of character I'd always written. If you read my books from the beginning, my heroes haven't changed much over the years. Uh, you know, they're pretty much my heroes. They do what they do and that they're they're infused with my core values in what I think works in a hero. And the same with the heroines. And I think if you respond to my books or any author's books, it's because you're not responding so much to the story, the plot, the characters. You're responding to the core values infused into the primary characters. And if and if you respond to those values, you're probably going to go back to those books, again, that author again and again. If you don't respond to them, it's a boring book. And I think that's how it works. So if you read my books, it's probably because you got – my sense of humor, <laughs> you, you, and you have the same. You share a lot of the same core values. The thing about genre, the reason it even exists at all, is because it's the device and the mechanism by which we send our values down to the next generation. It's the way we affirm them to ourselves throughout our life, and it's the way a culture keeps its culture intact. It's the myth of the core value of that civilization, whatever it may be, that is going to go down through history and it survives or it doesn't survive. And that's that's what genre does. It carries the myth. I love that. That's my theory. <laughs> <laughs> 
that I think is really true. And when I think about myself as a romance reader for 40 years or whatever, however long it's been, it's not that quite that long. I feel like I really do see that, like those arcs. But at the same time, I feel like there's so many ways I can talk about how romance has changed. So for you, like, what are the things, like, there's still, like, the big things that are the same. What are the things that have changed in romance, do you think? Those dang cell phones. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you laugh, but I'm telling no, you, it fair. really complicates the plotting. <laughs> no, I know what you, I know what you mean. Um, and, and one of the tricks to success in this business is trying not to, tie your story down to a particular era, unless you're really telling that era story. I mean, if you, you know, when you do 1930s, you're doing 1930s, but, but if you want the books to have a long life, it's best not to put in any gadgets that are going to get to, or, or celebrity or names. Yeah. Celebrity names, um, politicians, names, history, local ongoing history. Keep it, if you, the more you limit it to the myth and the mythical side of the story, the longer that story is going to survive. But that's that's a whole other issue here. Clearly, the, the surface changes all the time. And that's just true of any genre. But the underlying power of the genre that you love to read, whatever that genre is, doesn't change very much. And so I'm still writing relationships that have to overcome the hurdle of trust and it's not going to change it. It's, you know, that has nothing to do with politics or history or social problems. I think the more you deal in social problems, the more you move away from genre um, in a sense, because you're, you're dealing with the superficial again, you're back to what's current now, but 20 years from now, that won't be an issue. Some things will be issues because they're they're but they're universal things. Um, I'm thinking now about women's voting, getting the the right to vote. It's an interesting historical detail, and it's an important historical detail. And you can tell stories around it because that the suffragist movement was so important. But it is it's it's a different take. It's. I think what happens when you do that is like, it's like, okay, it's clear to see it set in, in a war. Any book you write set in World War II, no matter what you do, the war is going to be the primary character. Nothing, in the end, there will be sacrifices and everything will be sacrificed to doing the right thing in the war. Because that's the other thing that genre does, which is call upon its characters at one point or another to do the right thing. And we have a sense of a sense of what a real hero does when the chips are down. We have a sense of what a heroine is supposed to do when push comes to shove, and they do the right thing. And that's how that's that's all that matters. And that works big time if you're setting the story against an overwhelming backdrop like a world war. Mm-hmm. It's Casablanca. You never see. You never see any fighting or shooting. You know, there's one gun, but you know what I mean. The war is everything. But but everybody sacrifices for the war effort. And it's just, I'll never write that story because that's not my, that does not fit. It doesn't come back to the trust between two people that I want to write about. I can admire it. You know, it's not that, but it's not my story. As you're writing in your career, you know, you've spanned, you know, you 
you started with categories. You've written single titles. You've written sci-fi. You've written historicals. You've written – you write contemporaries now still. Um, at what point in this journey are you thinking, oh, my gosh, romance is a big deal? I mean, it's really – it's ha- there are millions and millions of women out there who are reading these books, largely women. I guess when the big checks started coming <laughs> <laughs> You know, once the American publishers got into the market, it became a big business really fast because that's just how the American market works. If it works, it explodes. You know what I mean? Right. Everyone's throwing yeah. books out all the time. Mm-hmm. You can clutter up the market in a hurry, everybody. You know, but that's kind of a normal process. And um, yeah, I just, I just think that the, um, the the process of becoming a big business happened really quickly, yeah. and simultaneously or concomitantly or whatever, right along with it, came the foundation of Romance Writers of America, which gave the romance writer access to the information about the business. So we grew up with it, in a sense. That first generation of romance, American romance writers grew up learning fast. Because at the time, Romance Writers of America was about the business, right? It was about professional writers coming together to share, to information share. It, it was networking. Yeah. We didn't, have, we didn't have that word for it, but that's what it was. And, and a lot of the friends I have today, I made back in those early days of networking. So talk about that. What was this community like? Who were they? Um, what were you getting from them? How were you interacting? Back at the beginning, only published writers were in the group. It later opened up to unpublished writers, but at, back at the time, we all had the same interests because we were all published. We we're all dealing with publishers. We we're all dealing with contracts. We we're all trying to find agents. You know, that there was a lot of business to, to discuss and, to, and the other uh, uh, organized novelists Inc. also came along about that time. Mm-hmm. And gradually, I think people realized that romance writers had a lot of, well, all the same concerns and interests as, the writers in the other genres. So there was some cross networking there too. It wasn't always comfortable, but you knew that there were other writers groups out there that had the same issues and, and you could learn from them. So I, I, I just think it was the networking thing that today happens online. So it isn't maybe so necessary to have the organizations that, that we, we just didn't have that online option I didn't know any other published writers until I went to that first meeting of the RWA, the very first RWA. Yeah. Who is the group of people who keep you going? Well, Susan Elizabeth Phillips, Kristen Hanna. A lot of it is our friends I know here, like Debbie Maycumber, because mm-hmm. we have a lot of us happen to end up in the Southwest or it's the Southwest Pacific Northwest. Christina Dodd, more newer friends have come along right now. Um, for example, Rachel Grant, who is doing a really interesting, modern, very modern version of the heroine who is an, is an archaeologist. And it's kind of the new Amelia Peabody, but except very modern. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, Darcy Burke. Were there editors who you feel were essential to the growth, your growth as a writer? Yes, and to the genre. Because I said back at the beginning, a lot of the editors were not people who actually loved the the genre. For a lot of editors, it was a starting point in their careers, which they hoped to move on to other kinds of books, I suppose. 
but years ago, it was, it's been a few decades now. I can't remember when editors started coming into the genre who like Vivian Stevens, just loved the books, just had a gut way to buy the books. They could buy them by intuition because they read the books. They knew how they worked. So editors like uh, Leslie Gelman and my editor today, Cindy Wong, who pretty much invented the whole paranormal <laughs> publishing industry. We should say Leslie Gelman also edits Nora Roberts. So yeah. you've you've mm-hmm. probably read something by Leslie Gelman's authors before. <laughs> and those editors, and, and they have in turn mentored a group of younger editors coming up and they choose their people now they choose their editorial staff knowing that they need writers they need authors they need they need these editors to bring in authors who will work long term and that takes an editorial eye that loves the basic story right so there's this it feels like there is this editorial mindset of building a career of ha- yeah. buying an author and and shepherding them through the journey. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it will probably last a lifetime, but, <laughs> but, but their careers and the writer's careers in that kind of publishing are very intertwined. There is no getting around it. On the other side of the coin is the, the self-publishing, the indie published authors who, who don't have that kind of connection. And it's a very different publishing world for them. It's an interesting it's an interesting thing that's happened in the industry because I think between the two, the the writers finding editors who love the books and the independent writers who don't need gatekeepers, which basically New York editing is a gatekeeping job. And agents are gatekeepers too. But the indie crowd doesn't have to worry about gatekeepers. So between those two groups, they they kind of have revolutionized the whole romance genre in that they have allowed an almost unlimited variety of experiments. And, and that has kept the genre, keeps it fresh. It keeps reinventing itself because it keeps going new places. Some of the other genres can't say that. They're much more hidebound, much more rigid in what's acceptable. If you put a vampire cop into a traditional murder mystery, it's not going to sell. They don't want vampires in there. They know what they want in their murder mysteries and it ain't vampires. But but a hair, but a romance reader will look at it. She may not like that book, but she'll give that story a chance. So the readers were inclined to be experimental too. They'll try something new. And that's, that's just been an amazing thing for the whole genre because it keeps churning, it keeps changing, it keeps adding and experimenting. And, and one of the reasons we were able to do that, even in the early days, was because nobody cared enough about romance to make any rules. It, mm, yeah. We skated under the radar and it was very useful for those of us who didn't know there were rules. <laughs> it was like, oh, okay. Yeah. So let's talk about um, this, Dangerous Men, Adventurous Women. Because I would like to hear the story of how this came to be in 1992. Well, I think at that point in my career, I was very successful. I knew a lot of other successful writers. And as the saying goes, we didn't get any respect. And it 
it wasn't that I wanted people to love my books. I understand. I don't read a lot of other people's books too. You know, I, I have no problem that you don't want to read the books, but the criticism was not proper criticism. It was not literary criticism. It was, it was blowing off, not just the, the writers, but the readers. And the implication was they're not well educated. They don't have a lot of money. They're, it, it, it just wrote everybody off from, from the consumer through the writer. And are you talking about specifically academics at this point? Or because there's a very famous late 80s study that came out about romance readers that presents them in this way. Is this Rad, Radway? The Radway. No, I read the book. And it's, <laughs> okay, one of the things I learned about going into academic publishing, which I did one time and will never do again, <laughs> is, is that you are expected to take a, what would be the right word, a philosophical slant mm-hmm. and then bring in the proof that shows that your take on it is correct. I've always felt that didn't really, wasn't very helpful because you can make anything look right if you bring in the evidence that you want to bring in. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't, and that was what passed for serious academic criticism. That was nothing compared to the jokes in the newspapers on Valentine's Day. Sure. I mean, which still persist. Yeah. No, it rang, it rang across the whole scale. So at that point, I was still in my feisty mode, I guess. You would say. <laughs> I love it. We're still in our yeah. feisty mode. So pass the baton right over. <laughs> Just go run with it. Run with it. Um, but I had been in the business long enough to know that there was one editor out there who straddled both the academic and the genre and that was Patricia Reynolds-Smith. Mm-hmm. I had met her while she was working for Harlequin. And then eventually she moved into academic. She went back to her roots, which was academic publishing, and with, was with the University of Pennsylvania Press. So I called her up and I told her what I had in mind. And I said, where would I take a book like this? And she said, right here. <laughs> Terrific. So she really is the one I give full credit to for that book because she knew how to organize it so that it looked academic, so that it was acceptable to an academic reader and that it met their standards as well as told our side of the story. And it's interesting because at the beginning of this book, the first line of this book is few people realize how much courage it takes for a woman to open a romance novel on an airplane. And it felt, I mean, I read that again you know, this week, and it just felt like a shot to the heart because it, I mean, we've all been there, right? Um, and people still feel this way, right? I mean, that, this 30 well, years later. Why, why, do you, why do you think uh, romance readers were early adopters of ebooks? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> None of your business, right? None of your business. Yep. But the, the idea, this kind of transformational idea of turning the text around and saying, you're missing the point. This is for the reader. This is about these women, these largely women who are experiencing these books, the mythology of these books, the power of these books themselves privately, was had to have been kind of earth shattering for academics <laughs> because that's not what they were talking about in those other books, which I also have read. Interestingly enough, we had several warmly received reviews from female academics. Mm -hmm. 
the harshest critics for that book that I recall were male. Sure. And they just didn't get it. It just, even with all our careful explaining, (laughs) (laughs) apparently we didn't explain it to a lot of men very well. (laughs) But most of the women I talked to afterward got it. Yeah. So you get together. So you send out an email or, well, you don't send out an email. (laughs) <laughs> Wait, no, yeah. how do you get all these people? <laughs> I know, exactly. Oh my God, what is happening? <laughs> you don't text your friends? This this is that thing called the telephone. Oh. <laughs> I remember. I remember now. So you start picking up the phone and calling, you know, yeah. the biggest names in the genre. Elizabeth Lola's in here, Mary Jo Putney, Susan Phillips, Sandra Brown, Stella Cameron. And you say, What? I tried to explain what I was trying to do, but I've never been the best proposal writer <laughs> in terms of explaining. I, I can write a proposal, but pitching it verbally has always been hard for me. But I, after talking to Pat Smith, the, the editor, I had a sense of how, how to phrase what I was asking for, which is I'm not going to give you a topic. I just want you to tell me what you think makes the books work. What is the appeal of the romance? And 19 authors came back with 19 different essays that all went together very nicely. It just, yeah. they, they just worked across the spectrum. And that book is still in the libraries today, academic libraries today. And that's, yeah. yeah. And, that, and that was what some Pat Smith told me going in. She said, after I was exhausted, because this took a year out of my life. Sure. <laughs> you try hurting Nineteen authors. Yeah, right. Before email. <laughs> Before email. <laughs> and then having to be the ones to pass along the edits. The notes. I, oh. Yeah. <laughs> without how dare you? <laughs> without losing any friendships in the process, you know it was. Um, but everybody came through, and everybody was very gracious about it. So it was an interesting experience all the way around. But she said, she said the. The one thing about this book is that it'll, it'll it'll still be around 20 years from now. And it is. I mean, it was I mean, it's been on my shelf since the very beginning of my career. So thank you. I'm really grateful for it. So we talked a lot about the what makes what your core story is and what makes a Jane Ann Krentz novel. I wonder if we could talk about your readers. Do you I mean, one of the things that really struck me in Dangerous Men and Adventurous Women in your in your introduction as I said was centering the reader. And you are you have this conversation in the introduction where you talk about um, reader service. And I wonder, we all know, of course, as readers and writers of the genre, that readers are really drawn to romance. And it's a very different kind of relationship that writers have with romance readers. Do you have any moments that stick out from across your career of times when you've heard from readers or really understood the power of the genre with them? I think the thing that surprises me the most and, and other writers I know have the same reaction is how often a reader will take the time to let you know that your book got them through a tough time. Mm-hmm. And I think it speaks to the underlying communication of the emotional core of those stories. When you are sitting by a bedside of somebody who isn't doing well you you want you want 
to read something that is speaking to your heart and and speaking to your emotional core and and affirming your own deep core values. And romance does that for women. It does it for men too, I think, but we haven't really gone there, you know, acknowledged this. I am I am always surprised at how many male readers, romance writers pick up along the way that they do respond to the books. And often it's the wife buying the book mm-hmm. and then he reads it at home kind of thing. It's an interesting play. Um, I remember asking one one male reader who came through a autograph line. He was really, really into the books that he was buying and he was very excited. And, and I and I asked him what it was he he what spoke to him of the stories. And he said, he, and his son was with him, and he said, My father just came back from the war. This was Vietnam. He, he was a yeah, he was a Vietnam vet. And his and the and the vet said, I just don't want any more blood. Yeah. <laughs> and so he got a he got a a story with a little mystery in it, a little suspense in it, a lot of action, but no really grisly, horrifying right. things. Mm-hmm. So there may be more of that kind of reader out there than we realize. They because so much of modern romance incorporates an element of suspense, yeah. which is also that romantic suspense is a is a I think also a really core American story. Yeah, and that's fascinating. And it's just yeah, very popular. Jen has a whole genuine. You tell I know you want to talk about Vietnam, <laughs> and you should ask your question. <laughs> well, my so my dad fought in Vietnam, and um, you know I read. Looking back, I am fascinated by how. So I started reading romance when I was probably twelve or thirteen. And this would have been like the mid 80s. And so many of these heroes were men back from Vietnam. And I am like just personally really and and Sarah's whole college thesis was about like women was about Vietnam. On the home front during Vietnam. Right. And so in various romance novels. I mean, sure. Of course, right. Romance novels. (laughs) Of course, right. And like (laughs) I think for both of us. I mean, for me, it was just really personal. Like, I still don't really understand my father. And when I read books about war by men, I'm reading about combat. But when I read romance about men coming home from war, I'm reading about my family. And I think that, um, like, I've I've always joked. I'm sorry. I'm, like, getting a little weepy. It's, like, hard to talk about because I feel like my dad's really broken, and he still is, and no one, like... Love didn't fix him, right? And and I know that, like, that's why I, f- I get so angry sometimes when people are, like, women reading romance. I'm like, look, I, I wanted to, like, live out a world where it was possible for my dad to be fixed by love. And romance gives me that. And I think that I'm just really fascinated by the way that, like, those Vietnam heroes, to me, turned into romantic suspense um, in a lot of ways, right? Like, we, we put it back on page, so I don't know if there's a question there. I think it's like well, your heroes meant a lot to me because I felt like I was like, here's somebody who's talking about how hard it was to live with these men who had come back from war and didn't know how to be parts of families anymore. No. And that is a common story after every war. It's not just Vietnam. It's every damn war sends them home. And what happens is these broken men came home and the women are left to patch them up as best they can. Yeah. Sometimes you just can't. Yeah. You know, the damage is too great. And I think the books acknowledge that. 
if they, they do give a happy ending because that's what we're in the business of providing is a, is a bit of hope at the end. But even with the happy ending, if, if you say that's unrealistic, and I don't know that it is for everyone. I mean, it, that, that's in your case, obviously it was for the real life. But what that what those books gave you was the fact that you were not the only person dealing with this. Women across the country were dealing with this and not always successfully. And they acknowledged that pain. They acknowledged the problem. They acknowledged the damage. Yes, they tried to fix it with love, but in a way that's not why you're that wasn't it right it was just that it was there other people acknowledged it i often say that if you want to read about miscarriage you should read romance because it's another place where it's like these things happen to people and we go on and i feel like that's one of the things to me as a reader like it's the and i just don't think romance gets enough credit for like really like really uh, saying like look at Look at what we go through, and yet we still, like, persevere or trust each other or find a way. Like, that's why I read romance. Every every single romance gives me that. Because it is affirming a positive core value. It is affirming, it is affirming hope, which ultimately is all we've really got. <laughs> um, but, on the, but on the respect side, I will tell you one story that has stuck with me for decades now. And that was um, years ago, I was at a conference, one of those book uh, book fairs. Remember the big book fairs? That, <laughs> yeah. Seattle used to have a big book fair. And, like book and I was, remember when we all went places and stood <laughs> with other people? <laughs> oh, those were the days. <laughs> oh, but I, I was standing with a crowd of local writers of all genres, because we just have a lot of local writers here. And there was a very well-known science fiction writer, a very well-known mystery writer, a very well-known um, um, memoir writer. I mean, there was just a bunch of us standing around. And somebody started whining about how they didn't get any respect. And I've been the only romance writer. And I, I figured I had the oh, biggest. Oh, boy. <laughs> was it a man? Fight me. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I kept my mouth shut because, because every single one of those genre writers had the same experience. Yeah. They might in turn have been able to look down on me, but by golly, they felt uh-huh. looked down upon <laughs> that, that sense. And I, and I, that was another insight into the fact that by and large, our country, our culture does not give a lot of respect to genre fiction in general, not just romance. We might get the sharp end of the stick or whatever, but there isn't really a lot of respect for the genres compared to the literary novel. And that I think is a huge misunderstanding of the purpose of genres, which, as I said earlier, isn't so much to capture a moment in history. It's to capture values and core cultural beliefs and affirm them and transmit them. And that's really crucial to a culture. That's more important to a culture than a piece of snippet of time of that culture, which will never be happen again, will never happen again. So you can write New York City problems or L.A. problems today or tomorrow, and that's a piece of history that you're doing. But it's it's the underlying core values that will decide whether or not it's mm-hmm. genre or literary. Yeah. I think it just has a really important place in our culture. Every culture has a version of genre stories, and that's how humans tell stories and why they tell them, I think. 
Because it's really kind of interesting when you think about it. Why do we tell stories? You know, <laughs> and we even if you don't read, you're going to be exposed to stories. You'll be inundated with stories on TV. I mean, it's, they just roll through. Well, we talk all the time about you know how romance really scratches a kind of primordial itch. Like it feels it hits you emotionally first and then the story waves over you, um, crashes over you. And I think that's the power of all genre is this idea that the stories have to be compelling. They have to keep you interested and, you know, keep you turning the pages in a way that, um, and I, I don't, I'm with you. I don't understand why that's somehow less valuable. It feels more valuable in a lot of ways. Right. I think it's because there's so much of it. Mm, and yeah. Humans just in general tend to blow off anything that's got tons of it around. And we are inundated with stories from, from film, from TV, from audiobooks, from books. Uh, it's just everywhere. So we tend not to give it a lot of respect. So back to your books. Are there books of yours that like you're the most proud of or that you hear the most from readers about? Maybe those are two different books. Yeah. <laughs> I've always heard a lot about Ravished. And that's because it is the most fundamental version of my core story. Yeah. And that's, it's Beauty and the Beast thrown in with the trust thing. For me, it's because Harriet (laughs) says, well, it's not like I'm doing anything with my virginity. (laughs) A classic line. It is the greatest moment in romance history when Harriet (laughs) says that. (laughs) What good is this doing? Yeah. Now it's, um, so I'll hear a lot about that one, but to tell you the truth, I, the book I love best is always the one that I just finished. And I suppose that's because it's the one that I just most recently wrote my heart into, you know, and I, and um, people tend to s- quote lines back at me. I'll hear lines from books. That I forget. <laughs> I, <wrote the> line. <laughs> I think, I think the only line I, I really remember writing it. It's only because I heard it quoted so many times after the book came out, which was um, good news. She doesn't need therapy. (laughs) (laughs) That was from perfect partners. And I've heard that line my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) Proof. Jane and Krentz is not from New York city. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's great. Are you, um, do you feel like there is a book that you, um, is there a book of yours that you wish would outlive you if you could choose one? It isn't, I don't think of my own books as being that kind of book that would speak to future generations. I don't, it, it would be nice if it did, but I don't have a strong, it's not part of what I'm trying to write for. But what I hope outlives and, and lives on is the genre itself. Because I think the romance genre is probably the core genre from which everything else derives. You can't write any of the other genres without that core story of relationships. Yeah. Mm. At least they won't be very interesting stories <laughs> if you don't. So, so I, I, I hope we never, I hope as a culture, we never lose the romance genre simply because I think it is, it's a critical voice and a critical kind of story that we need because it's all about the foundation of, of a union, a family and, and a community. And that's, that core value is what holds civilization together. So, 
there you go. We need romance to keep civilization going. Amen. So yeah. much pressure. <laughs> well, I think that's a perfect place to end. Jen, do you have anything else? No, this was unbelievable. I'm going to go lay in my bed and think for a long time. <laughs> it really, like, it's transformational, this conversation. It makes you think. I mean, when she says genre carries the myth, stop it. I just, I immediately wrote it down on a post-it note. Yes, well, I mean, so I said at the beginning that we recorded this months ago, right? We're actually recording the topper the week before it airs in this part. And I have been thinking about that part of the conversation for so long. Not only because I think it's so smart about what genre does and why it works the way it does. You know, specifically the thing that she said, too, about in genre, characters are called upon to do the right thing. Oh, right. It just makes sense. It just makes sense, right? Like this myth-making aspect of it. But next week, we are going to be talking about a historical romance called Passion. And one of the things that we ended up talking about, and I think we've talked about over and over again, is why it is that so many readers will come after historical authors and say, that's not true. I think a lot of people look at it about like historical accuracy, but it's when you think about it instead as being like, no, they're fighting. They don't like the myth changing on them. They don't like characters doing the right thing in a way that, you know, they aren't used to. Or they don't like uh, valorizing characters that they've never thought of as being worthy of valor. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And so I was thinking about it so much as I was re-listening because I was like, this, to me, really helps understand, like, these are not people that are going to be swayed by, oh, but the word cunt has been around for, you know, hundreds of years because that's not – it's not about historical accuracy. It's about – I don't like that I'm not the primary character in this myth anymore. Right, the hero of it. And Mm -hmm. I I think that that then, if you think about – the, these changing mores as being these conversations are a, a proxy for like not just how romance is changing, but how society is changing and who we make a place for and who gets to be the star of the, the show. Then those conversations just take on a new kind of relevance and importance, one that I think I would approach in a different way in the future after thinking about what, what Jane said. Yeah, I think that there is such power. I mean, clearly we talked about this in the in the episode with her, but there's such a sense with Jane that she carried the banner mm-hmm. of romance for a while. And she carried that banner because of this, because of her bedrock belief that romance and genre fiction are the successors of the core stories of us as humans. And the core stories of us as a society, right? Yeah. I mean, lay me down. Even just saying it, I got covered in goosebumps. Like, oh, that's what it is. Of course. I mean, and that's without even talking about core story, which she is so brilliant about. I mean, she was the first person who ever said core story to me, I think. And talk about somebody who just understands her work. Yeah. And never deviates from her path. And even with all, I had no idea that so many of these pen names came because she was 
quote, failing, right? Yes. That she was, she had to restart her career so many times. The idea that Jane Ann Krenz slash Amanda Quick slash Jane Castle slash Stephanie James had to restart, had to reboot is bananas to me because I do think of her as being the best of us in so many ways. You know, I mean, especially coming off the reread of Ravished that we did. We have talked a lot about the trailblazers in terms of, like, offline. Like, what are the things that keep coming up over and over again? Vivian Stevens, the role of those woody wisps, right? Like, the things that really were, like, markers for so many of these these writers. But the thing that I keep thinking about is, like, but what about our listeners or the, you know, new, young, up-and-coming authors to hear that – Jane Ann Krenz was like, yeah, I was a a failure. I mean, I was like, but. My agent told me I should try historicals and we didn't even tell them I was the author. Like that is, aside from just being almost unfathomable, the the other side of it is so inspirational. Yes. You know, not to be, you know, cheesy about it, but. The idea that she, that this kind of, you know, rock star, a true trailblazer, struggled over and over again and had to reinvent herself over and over again, it's really amazing. Especially because, you know, my, on the, the New Year's Eve episode, I said my sister was looking for an old Stephanie James, which, by the way, we think we found, we'll put it in show notes, but there's this idea that Failure to the industry also yeah. is looks very different to readers yes. than failure to readers. Because, like, my sister, who is in her 50s and read that Stephanie James book in the 80s, yeah. does not believe that that book or Stephanie James are... No. In fact, I had to tell her that Stephanie James was Jane Ann Krentz. So she was like, whatever happened to her? You're like, oh, you she's, know. as a matter of fact, <laughs> she <still>. did okay. <laughs> she's doing all right. That's the part I think that is really, in in a lot of ways, like just like really almost like wildly inspiring because I think it is so easy in our modern world or wherever we are right now to think if I don't – that it it has to be a steady upward trajectory and if it's not – you know, if it's not right. that, if then you're not an instant bestseller, then you're a failure. And it really speaks to like, no, this is a marathon. It is not a sprint. And there are going to be times you're going to fall down. There's going to be times you have to, you know, reinvent yourself, come up with a new name, abandon a genre, a subgenre you love because it is not the right time to be on that wave. Fantasy, I mean, speculative fiction, speculative romance, it still doesn't have a strong foothold. And when it is not out of line to suggest that Jane Ann Krentz is the founder of that particular subgenre. And, you know, still, we're still fighting for that, to claim space there. So, I mean, and I think that that's sometimes the hard part about romance is, you know, <laughs> I think I'm a deeply pragmatic person, and sometimes I'm like, you know, the things I personally as an individual reader want, like, and think are great are not what the market will bear right now. And you know what? Oh, well. Like, figure out what the what is going on in the market right now and enjoy it till your thing comes back around. I don't know. Yeah. 
And I think that that's kind of what I took away from this conversation. What I have taken away from most of my conversations with Jane is you can have both, right? You can both write what you love and write to market. I mean, there is yes, there is a space for both of those things, but her pragmatism, to use your word, is a lot about sustaining a career. I mean, sometimes you write to market because that's what the market wants, and you know you can deliver it, and you know you can succeed with it. And, you know, every one of those books makes room for you to write the book, you know, in space. The book that, right, eventually you hope to make room for. There's a part where um, she was talking about we are like kind of like how's romance changed and she joked and said cell phones mm-hmm. and she was really talking about um, essentially like if you are right now right if you're talking about celebrities or politicians or technology that exists right now that it really like limits you because you're it kind of almost takes away from that mythological aspect sure. And one of the things I found myself, everyone has heard me ranting and raving at some point or another about how annoyed I am when people are using, like, really old pop culture only in their books. I'm like, And I'm like, well, if you think about it as myth-making, I guess people our age are really trying to, like, entrench Ferris Bueller's Day Off in the American myth or whatever. But it's really interesting to also think about um, – I, I personally think still – when we see that disconnect between, like, the author and their, like, personal myth or cultural myths versus right. their characters. And this I, – so I just – I found this conversation with her to be so generative in thinking new ways about things that I spend a lot of time thinking about. Yeah. Well, it's also that piece of, you know, the balance of doing the import the romance doing the important work of society – Right. Yeah. And also romance placing a character and a love story in a in a specific time. Right. That, you know, 40 years from now, hopefully we don't we don't have that conversation anymore. So I think I I, of course, always think about, you know, that is a struggle that is a particular struggle with contemporaries. But it also is so important for us who don't, for those of us who don't write contemporaries to think about that, because the conversations that our characters are having on page, mm-hmm. you know, the the work of the genre is to figure out how to have those conversations without aging the book, dating the book. And maybe sometimes that's impossible. You know, I, I don't know. I think about that Nora Roberts book we read, Where the Hero Smokes All the Time. Sure. And it's like, how could she have known? Of course. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and I think that's the part where it's like working too hard to make your books out of time sometimes means. But sometimes, yeah, then you get like, I've been thinking about the hating game a lot recently, right? Because as you know, I love, I love the hating game so much and the movie. And one of the things that I think Sally made a real choice about is you have no idea it's in a city but the city is very amorphous right like there's no there's no city um because she didn't want to place it in in she didn't want to ground it in a place and and i think that there is a reason that's one of the reasons why the hating game is a global success because everybody can place it in their particular the city they love the most um and then the movie put it in new york and it was like oh huh 
Now these yeah. are New Yorkers in a car, you know? <laughs> so, right, it changes it. Why are they driving? <laughs> it's And these are, I think, really... These are fast. I mean, I'm I could have this conversation over and over and over again, but I just like I said, I think the thing that was really interesting for me is I I sometimes get really stuck in this conversation. I'm just like, you know, annoying the shit out of people saying the same thing over and over again, and I found this conversation with her to really give me new avenues for these questions and new ways to think about the genre itself. Well, I guess I would say also thank you to everyone for letting me have my Vietnam moment again. Hey, listen, I will I will have you and whoever you want to talk to about Vietnam talk about Vietnam anytime. Yeah, but it's interesting because it proves that we don't know what we're doing all the time. It's the Venn, it's that Venn diagram, right? What your English teacher says the author was sure. doing, what the author was doing. And we don't know because we can't, we, you know, that Vietnam thing is a perfect example of. right. We know what we're trying to do sometimes, but when something that massive, you know, and I think about Vietnam or, Mm -hmm. you know, COVID. Sure. Is happening around us and we're not overtly talking about it, but it's in there. It's in all the text. And so there it is, right? The genre carrying the myth. Last week, I ended up reading this book I actually don't recommend called Everything and Less, the novel in the age of Amazon. And I found myself like kind of like really like having that moment. It's like a nonfiction book by a Stanford professor, like really like disagreeing with a lot of what he said. And of course, then you can just like, you know, take it to Twitter. And one of the things that he ended up talking about was the difference between like Like, he admits that, like, genre essentially is working. Like, you can tell what genre's interested in only by looking at the collective. I don't disagree with that. I absolutely agree with it. I was like, okay, Mm -hmm. we agree with this. But where we disagreed was him saying, essentially, um, he talked about Virginia Woolf and how, you know, Mrs. Dalloway, of course, is just superior because it's the singular work of art that's as opposed to the genre. And I was kind of like, but that's... What I'm actually interested in is how that collective works. Yeah. How does it work that there is a hive mind where everyone is somehow chewing on the same thing? And I think Jane answers it for us, right? We're grappling with our own mythmaking. Mm-hmm. And that is interesting to me where this guy was sort of like, man, that's, you know, not interesting to him. It's just like this totally different perspective. Mrs. Dalloway and genre can exist together. There's no reason to choose one or the other. We can have both. That's what's amazing about it. One of the things that I've been really struggling with over the last couple of weeks is, um, you know, this best of the year lists, right? Not the mm-hmm. not the subgenre list, not the like best mystery of the year or the best romance of the year, but like best overall books lists, which a lot of the publishing media are um, they're kind of calling together. They At the end of the year, they call together what they believe are the best lists. Sure. The best of the books of the year by virtue of what other, what the big critics have all named their 10 best books, right? So it's, you know, everybody makes their list of 10 and the ones that are on multiple lists rise to the top. And so, of course, like, if you have, say, the New York Times make a list of the 10 best books of the year, there might be one romance on it. It's rare, but there might be. 
you know, and other places too, but that romance or that thriller or that mystery or that sci-fi novel never makes it to that sort of like, and these are the 10 best novels of the year. And so I often think to myself, like, there's so much missing from these lists. And we know that by virtue of making a list, there's going to be stuff that's missing. But the idea that like whole segments of myth-making text, right. of like myth text, right, is are like the myths of this time and place and society and culture are missing from these lists and just lost, right? Without Rebecca Romney, they're lost. Yeah. What are we doing? So that's it. I mean, I was essentially having the same, like, thought to myself, yeah. right? And I think, look, we obviously are genre fans for a lot of reasons, and we love romance for a lot yeah, of reasons. But, but empirically, right? Like, I don't read sci-fi, but I do think that, like, surely there is a science fiction novel of the from the year that is – remarkable and deserves to be held up as one of the best texts. I think here's here's my theory is like I remember um when Stephen King used to be genre and now he's like literature. Mm. And maybe it's just that there has to be like I don't know, maybe you just have to put in your time. I'm not sure. I don't know. I mean, it's not like Nora put Nora hasn't put in her time, you know? I think there's a lot of, you know, the patriarchy. Oh, really? Do you think that? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Crazy Anyway, idea dangerous men, adventurous women. Yeah. It's awesome. And it's every time we have one of these conversations, I think to myself, we're never going to get them all, right? We're never going to get every person who held the banner. But I'm really, really happy we got Jane. Yeah, me too. And I hope you all were too. I hope you were all inspired the way we were. And it, you know overwhelmed the way we were <laughs> oh god yeah even listening to it again i was like i'm just gonna sit here for a while Ooh, yeah so brilliant and we're so so grateful so before we go it's worth saying that um jane has a new book coming out on january 18th called lightning in a mirror it is book three of the fog lake trilogy of which i have read all of them um, I mentioned it actually on the episode. Um, and again, this is part of a series that has to do with like intuition and, you know, like sort of some of the very things that she was talking about. So if you would like to prepare for that, you could read the first two books, The Vanishing and All the Colors of Night, and then prepare yourself for Lightning and Mirror, which comes out in a couple of weeks. We are Faded Mates. You are listening to a Trailblazer episode, which uh, we've been doing for all of season three and will likely continue to do until we die (laughs) Um, and you can listen to all the other trailblazer episodes at fatedmates.net you can find us at fatedmates on twitter and at fatedmatespod on instagram Um, please tell us tell us how you're liking the trailblazer episodes shoot us emails if you would like um, sarah at fatedmates.net or jen at fatedmates.net and um, tell us what you're thinking and shout about these trailblazers because they deserve it. And uh, next yeah. week, next week is Passion with Lisa Valdez. Get ready. It's a ride. <laughs> Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.